I just realised I need my phone, if you can bring that to me please, Shelley, because I have another special announcement this morning. Uh, I just want to let you know that in the, in the next few weeks or, or perhaps a couple of months, you're going to see some signs go up. That's normal, right, when you build a new building. There's going to be signage. And so we took the opportunity uh, to update our logo. And so if you look at the, the screen behind me here, that's our old or our existing logo. Now, I'm going to show you the new one, and you're going to think, I can't tell much difference because it's an update. Okay, it's not a brand new one. And so this is where we're, we're at today. And I just want to explain a few things for you. Yeah, <laughs> you're going, well, that's... It looks the same to me. Actually, it's not. <laughs> this is really exciting. So it's, it's a modernised logo, and um, you can probably tell that the, the text or the, the font has changed. Uh, we believe it'll, it'll uh, be a timeless uh, font that, that won't age over time. Obviously, you can see we've moved the symbol or the icon to the front instead of in the middle. And, and Now, does everyone know that, that's, that our icon is a H? That's a letter H. Can you see that? Is that? Did someone just know that for the first time this morning? Yeah. Well, now you know. You can see it clearer. So that was part of the update, is that the H actually kind of stands out a little bit more. It pops, right? That was the idea of the proportions have been slightly adjusted and things like that. But the thing is, there's also four elements to that icon. And I want you to think of our four mission statements when you see those four elements. Those four things represent exactly that, that we're about glorifying God, that we're about embracing people and planting seeds and making disciples. So there's actually a, there's meaning to that. It's not just a H for hills. There's actually meaning in those four things as well. So we've also been looking at um, things like um, colours and uh, how it's going to look. Now, you might recognise some colours on that screen there that are sort of starting to appear more and more around the place. And so we, we have a colour palette that will be used more and more in our style guide. There'll be more uh, angled things that you'll see that kind of match that logo or that icon as well. So that's where we're up to on that. All right, I like it. Does everyone else like it? Yes. That's good. Yeah, oh, good. That's a good sign when people clap. Thanks, um, Sam. That's why I wanted my phone, by the way. I was... I was controlling that. Now, as you know, I'm, I'm heading off on long service leave, and I'm going to be in the office this week, actually, until Friday, uh, working hard and, and, and catching up with people. And so now's the time to see me if you, if you have something that you need, that you need to see me about. Um, but I won't be here next Sunday. Uh, I will be back on July the 31st. That's a, I mean, wild horses can drag me away from that one, right? It's going to be a really good day. I really want you all to be here. If you're watching online... Please be here on July the 31st. That's going to be a big day. But I want you to know something, church. Yes, I'm going away on, on some leave. I just want you to know I love this church. Like I really do. And I love being your pastor. This is an amazing privilege that God has given me in, in the calling to be here and to pastor you. And it's my sense that, that my calling is here for many years to come. Yeah, just in case you were wondering. You know, if you'll have me, <laughs> and, and if God wills it, okay? But my sense is that it's time for me to take a break, and in fact, a, a longer break than usual. 
Shelley's also going to take some holidays with me, but she's, she doesn't actually have long service leave due to her and her job at Youth for Christ. But we'll be away throughout that period together. But you're going to see her throughout the next 10 weeks. But I'm just asking you to, to be praying for us in, in this season, if you can. Now, while I'm away, the team is on deck here, and they're going to continue to be awesome like they always are. Pastor Mark and Beck are in the office each day. You know, Adam's here on Tuesdays and Fridays. Kate's in here serving on Tuesdays as well. The counselling service continues at full steam. In fact, there is a new program that, they are, that has literally, um, the date's been set now and it's going to be launched this week. I think the advertising goes out uh, for, for teenagers who have anger issues. And so uh, we've already got people who've expressed interest in that and that's exciting. The ministries are in good hands Mark, Beck, Adam, Kate and Claire are going to be sharing the preaching duties over the next 10 weeks. I want you to support them in that. Yeah. So you should be here to hear what God is going to say through them. The AGM will go ahead on August the 21st without me. <laughs> That's so good. Our, um... yeah. our DS, our district superintendent will be here to chair that at 11.15. I am actually due for uh, my call to be voted on or extended this year, so we won't do that at the AGM. We'll do that on my return. We'll have a special members meeting. I fully expect the church to flourish over the next couple of months because Hill's Church is not actually about me. It's about, it's about Jesus and his family gathered. We better get on to the message for today. If you're new to Hills, we've been reading through the wider story arc of the Bible, and we've been using a resource called The Story, and it's selections of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I personally have found it very uh, helpful. Uh, I just got reminded that I've missed an, another announcement. Is that what you're telling me, Ian? Yeah. All right. Back up a little bit. <laughs> One other thing is that Ian's going to be at the back of the auditorium today. He's really seeking some helpers over the next few weeks before we open because there's a bunch of little jobs that we need to take care of. And, and he has been working tirelessly. I can tell you, I see Ian here probably nearly every day working. And, uh, and he probably needs some help in this phase more than ever. And so can I please encourage you, you stand at the back there, Ian. He's got a list of jobs. You can put your name beside him. Some of them are really simple. And it won't take much time. Others might need you to be here for a few days or something like that. Nevertheless, that's really important that you do that, and I'm sorry that I missed that one. All right. We're up to chapter 20 of 31. It's another interesting chapter, isn't it? The quick version of where we're up to, we've been following Israel. They fell out of covenant with God, and after many, many warnings, they, they split in two, and eventually uh, the northern tribes are conquered by the Assyrians. They go off. Many of them go off into exile. Then uh, a period later, um, the southern tribes, Judah, gets conquered by the Babylonians. They get carried off into exile. And last week we read that the Persians then conquered, well, the Babylonians had conquered the Assyrians. The Persians now conquered the Babylonians. Is everyone following what I'm saying? And that uh, King uh, Cyrus, the new Persian king, agreed that the, Jew, the Jews could go home and rebuild the temple after the, being in exile for about 70 years. And so the first wave of returnees came home under Zerubbabel as their governor. But it was really hard. That was the message from last week. There's opposition. There's setbacks. In fact, it took 20 years 
to build their temple. 20 years. They could have quit, and in fact, the times they almost did. But through the prophets, they were told, you should persevere, and they did. And because they persevered, God's plan was realised. The temple for that for the, uh, the people of God in this time was how they kept the main thing, the main thing. That's where God resided. That's where they worshipped. That's where the sacrificial atonement happened. It was very important that that was first. They completed it before they looked to the wider city nation and the, and the nation building projects. In other words, the thing that they had learned about exile as God's people was we keep the main thing, the main thing. Relationship with God is the main thing. This week, the story shifts location. So, you know, we went, we had Daniel and his three guys in Babylon. We went to Jerusalem for the temple. And now we're going to go back to Babylon again. And the story of Esther and Mordecai, who were still there. Now, just to help with the timeline, the rebuilt temple was completed in 516 BC. Esther becomes queen in 478 BC. Remember, you're going backwards when you're before Christ. About 20 years after that, in 458 BC, the second group of returnees under Ezra, they head off to do the, the walls of Ju- Jerusalem and uh, Nehemiah, etc., which will be next week's chapter. Actually, next week is the last chapter in the Old Testament. Kind of exciting to move on to the New Testament. At the same time, it's uh, sad to be leaving behind um, the nation of Israel in this way. The interesting thing, interesting thing about the book of Esther is that God is actually never explicitly referenced. Did anyone notice that? You may have heard that before. And yet, through it all, his evidence, or the evidence of him and and his his presence and power and and his interaction and his protection with his people is really obvious. Nothing, here's the thing, nothing stops God's plan. Nothing stops it. Even when the, the, the nation's out of covenant and they're exiled and all this is, and, and you know, Jerusalem's in kind of in ruins in a way. Nothing stops God's plan. It might feel like it to people at times, but nothing stops it. I think we've been singing about that this morning. One of the overarching themes is, is of a God and his redemption plan always moving ahead, even when it seems like it's not, or it seems like maybe the enemy's having a victory. No, no, no. This is the lesson we can learn here. God's still moving. His redemption plan is still happening. But reading this chapter this week, you can't help but get a picture of a culture in Babylon that is just really pagan, isn't it? Like it's evil. Um, People are living completely immoral lives. And that includes the leadership of this nation, of this Persian nation. King Xerxes had just enormous wealth and opulence and power. And the story we read describes this drunken kind of revelry right in the king's court. And apparently it was very common. I mean, if you read this week, he had a party that went for seven days. Seven days. And it was part of a 180-day bigger, wider celebration. That's that's partying, right? Like, that's that's craziness. I get exhausted after two hours at a party. (laughs) Seven days. Here's what it says in Esther 1, just to give you a snapshot. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. But the king's command, uh, but the king's command each guest was 
allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Just to give you a sense of what's going on for seven days. I was reading this week, um, there's an ancient Greek historian by the name of Herodotus who claimed that the Persians at this time, that they would actually seek intoxication when it came to making important political decisions. They actually saw it as a spiritual connection. That's, that's true. That's what, that, I'm just trying to paint the picture. Okay, you see what's going on? Esther is a, a Jew living in Babylon who gets swept up in, in this sequence of events in this world. You know, a world she could never have imagined. It's probably a world that she would never have wanted. King Xerxes asked something of, queen, of his, his original Queen Vashti and she refused to do it. And you can imagine that it was something really degrading given he wanted her to perform, perform in, a, in front of a group of men at one of these parties we've just been talking about. And given what we just learned, I'd say that um, she, she probably, you can understand why she would say no. So he deposed Queen Vashti, and quite frankly, reading between the lines, the method of searching for a new queen sounds just as degrading to the women selected for this new, this new position as queen. That was the world Esther found herself in. Like, sadly, I would say. After a long process, Xerxes chose her to be his queen. The Bible says, though, that he showed her favour. There's two other people we want to talk about in this story. Two royal officials that take centre stage, Haman and Mordecai. Two very different people, both royal officials. Haman is from, he's a local, you know, kind of Babylonian Persian guy. Uh, Mordecai is a Jew, obviously they're in exile, and he's actually Esther's older cousin, but Esther sadly had lost her parents, and so he'd kind of raised her like a daughter, as like his own. And, and in a similar way to Daniel last week, Mordecai has enemies in the royal court who were scheming against him because of who he was as a, as a Jew. Haman is the chief schemer, and for him it's all about Haman. He manages to get elevated to a high position that requires people to bow down to him, and he loves it. He loves it that people are doing this for him. But Mordecai refuses to bow down. Here's what it says in Esther chapter 3 of verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down to, or uh, pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman manages to, to convince King Xerxes that the Jews are trouble. You know, we should eliminate them. It sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? And so Xerxes buys into this lie and Haman sends the word out to all the provinces to eliminate the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month. Unbeknownst to Xerxes is that he's just signed his, his queen's uh, death warrant along with all of her people. Mordecai uncovers this plot and he begs Esther to act and to approach the king. And the thing is, this is a bigger request than you might think. You know, this is just not just like, hey, Esther, can you catch up with Xerxes around the kitchen table tonight and tell him what's going on? That's not how it works in this culture. 
In this place, the king is, is almost like a god and he, and he has many wives and you don't really have many freedoms. You only go to him when he summons you. You don't go to him in, on your own accord. Here's what it says in Esther chapter 4. Then she instructed Havoc, that's one of Esther's um, helpers, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to, to go to the king. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back the answer, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, and I love her response, go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And if you read this week, you know God answered their prayers. He responded to their prayer and fasting. The king not only spared Esther's life when, when she approached him, he heard her appeal about saving her people. And, and then as with Daniel, the king couldn't repeal his original decree. This seems to be the, the way their laws worked at the time. Once a decree was, was there, that's it. For some reason, they can't repeal it. So he decides, well, what we'll do is we'll create a new law. The Jews can defend themselves. Let them know what's coming and, and allow them to defend themselves. And that's, that's what happened. Instead of the Jews being wiped out, they lived, they lived on. You know, God's plan. There's still going to be a nation that bless, blesses all nations because Esther had enough courage to do what God had placed her there to do. Haman then lost his life once the king realised his real motivation. And Mordecai then gets elevated into a high position. Here's what it said in chapter 10. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. I've got three very short messages today, well, th three short lessons about the three main characters in this story for us to take home. First one is, is about Haman. His lesson is this. Pretty simple, pride will lead to a fall, eventually. Pride will eventually lead to a fall. In fact, I'm going to go further and say pride may even lead to death. Sounds extreme, perhaps. But unchecked pride is a dangerous place to be. And the reason I say it might lead to death is because pride may stop us from knowing and acknowledging our need for a saviour. Pride is a dangerous place to be. It tends to be self-perpetuating because it's pride itself that stops us from seeing that we have pride. That's the difficulty with it. When pride is our problem, we see ourselves through a distorted lens. We only see what we want to see. There are, there are so many warnings about, about pride in the Bible. Too many to list today, but Proverbs says pride 
ends in humiliation, while humility brings honour. Jonathan Edwards, he says there's six signs that pride might be your problem. And I'm going to read them really quickly today, and I invite you to check, do I have these signs? And I'm going to do it too, okay? This is not just on you, this is on me too. Six signs that pride might be our problem. The first thing is fault-finding, because pride causes us to filter out our own weaknesses, and we filter out God's goodness in others. We focus on others' faults, and we let that cloud our perception of them. The second one is a harsh spirit, the second sign. Prideful people speak of others' weaknesses with contempt, you know, irritation, frustration, or judgment. It's pride that leads us to belittle others, even when we say it sarcastically, because we really do kind of mean it. It's a joke, right? But actually, it's not. If our tendency is to constantly be exasperated and irritated with people, if, if, if you recognise that sign in you, Please, let's check our pride, because if we're followers of Christ, how we treat others should align with him. And he was humble. The words we say, the actions we take, followers of Christ have the opposite of a harsh spirit. We have a gentle and encouraging spirit, not just in in public, but in private. We see God's goodness and value in people, even though sometimes this can be hard to. The third sign is superficiality. Pride leads us to be more concerned with people's perceptions of us and the reality of who we are. You know, what's going on here in the heart? The fourth sign is defensiveness. Pride leads us to rush to to be defensive, to our defences when challenged. We're too concerned with being right, whereas humility can actually submit to others. Humility can can just say, I don't have to be right. When appropriate, we can submit. And it's the humble way. Pride struggles to turn the other cheek, but has a tendency to hit back in a disagreement. You know, not necessarily physically, verbally. Humility can walk away and take it to God in the prayer closet and trust him with outcomes. The fifth sign is desperation for respect. Because pride is hungry for respect and attention. You know, we want to kind of elevate ourselves, boast about ourselves a little bit. We, we probably need more affirmation than is healthy. That can be another sign of it. Sometimes we may even be scornful or jealous when other people get attention or respect. And the sixth one, these are all from Jonathan Edwards, the sixth one is neglecting others. Because pride tends to play favourites It prefers some over others. It gives respect to only just the select few that we choose. You know, we consciously or maybe unconsciously pass over the weak or the inconvenient and sometimes the unattractive because they don't seem to offer us much. And so the question this morning for me and for everyone here this morning is, do any of these signs ring true of us? The problem, as I said at the very beginning, is that pride sometimes stops us from even seeing that. So you've got to go deep. And if you can't, you better ask someone else who can be really honest with you and that you trust. That's a hard one. Pride robs us of so much. It sabotages marriages, families, friendships. It can sabotage our businesses, our careers, and ultimately our relationship with with Jesus. The psalmist warns us, eventually, maybe not for a while, because you'll get by, 
that eventually humiliation is where it ends. Because when pride is our problem, we don't really need Jesus, do we? We're good enough without him. But it's a false lens. It's deceptive. It's fake. It needs to be seen for what it is. And it requires deep confession and repentance over a long period. And it has no place in a Christian. It's mostly where the source of their sin comes from. It's the main thing that the Holy Spirit has been chiseling away at (laughs) if we will let him year after year to get it out of us. When pride is replaced with humility, I promise you people will notice. Okay, the second person is Mordecai and his lesson is this, and I guess it's the opposite of Haman. Humility is costly, but it pays off in the end. There's a cost to humility that is always worth it. The cost is letting someone else be right at times and not getting my way, not having to win. The cost is letting others go ahead of us, letting others get the attention or the reward, rejoicing when others get honoured, even when we don't. Like, but from a place of, of real heartfelt joy for that person. Real humility and joy seeing others get things. The cost is doing the hard work of learning to like the ones that can sometimes be hard to work. The cost is not seeking reward for the good that we do and just being okay with that when it doesn't come. C.S. Lewis says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Important thing. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Do you see that? The payoff is deep and satisfying relationships. The payoff is respect and honour from others that you didn't even go seeking. The payoff is love in return for who you are, not what you're good at. The payoff is the respect you earn from those above you in life who learn to trust you, including God. Mordecai didn't go looking for the highest position in the land. That was what Haman was doing, the one with the pride. Mordecai didn't go looking for it. Haman almost got there through pride, but eventually it led to his downfall, as it nearly always does, eventually. Mordecai's humility almost cost him his life along the way. But his humility, humility eventually led him to the second highest position in the, in the whole empire, in the, in the land. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. All of you, dress yourself in humility. You, you know, you just got to put on that picture of, it's almost something you got to put on, isn't it? Until it becomes something that's always in here. Dress yourself in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I always found that to be quite, uh, not harsh, but God opposes the proud. That's what the scripture says. In other words, we're not going to get in his favour, in his, in his way, if, if, the, if pride is our problem. And then he says in verse 6, So humble yourself under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honour. In other words, if we're missing out on that honour, we just trust it with God. Really, the one that we care about the most, the opinion we care about the most, is actually God's opinion. All right, the third person, of course, is Esther. The lesson is one person's courage can ripple down through the generations. I have a feeling I've done this point before in another one of our Old Testament, the story series. Should I do a little check to see if anyone remembers it? 
None. Okay, good. All right. Esther risked her life to follow through with God's sovereign plan to save. That was his plan. I'm going to save the Jews in Babylon. They're going to return. It's a great lesson in God's sovereignty and the courage to say yes to his plan. And there is no way that Esther would have known that God had her there for this reason. Those famous words from Mordecai, they ring really true for her. Let me go back to them. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So church, God has a redemption plan for this world. And you're part of it. You're part of that plan. Wherever you are today, there's a good chance that where you are, God has you there for a reason. Have you ever stopped and asked God what that is, though? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever stopped and said, God, why, why have you put me in this particular place? The place that you're working, the place that you're studying, maybe the business you own, the family you're in, the church you attend, the suburb or town that you live What has God got you there for? What about the gifts that he's given you, the money and resources he's gifted you, the qualifications you have, what you're good at, your talents, the experience you have, the way your personality is, the type of mind that you have, the way you think. You have all those things for a reason. So why don't we just start asking God, why? Why has he got me here? What is my part in his plan? And you might be like Esther, you could be in a very pagan environment. You might be surrounded by temptation or pressure to conform. You might even have opposition coming against you. But God may have you there for such a time as this. Esther stayed true to her faith in God. There was no sign that she gave up her faith under incredible pressure to stay quiet. You know, remember what she said, if I perish, I perish. That's amazing faith. She trusted God. Similar to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego before they were thrown into the furnace and Daniel to the lions, lions, all of them trusted God with their life. In fact, they trusted God with their eternity, you could say. Because he's bigger than just this life. Esther found courage to say yes to what God had in mind for her when the time came. The courage was there. How many times have we read through the story? where God said, be strong and be courageous. Here we are again. And God prevailed. This is the amazing thing. Esther was willing to put her life on the line for her people. You know, I'm not sure that I'll ever be in a position where I have to put my life on the line to save you guys. I don't think that's going to happen to me in this country. But I know someone who has. Jesus put his life on the line for every single one of us and willingly gave it. I mean, you want to talk about humility? Look to Jesus. Talk about the opposite of pride. He's the example. Like Mordecai, the humble Jesus who found courage to face death for all, for all of us. He's, he's elevated to the highest position. He sits at the Father's right hand, and we are reaping the benefits He saved us. God keeps coming through. The world keeps rejecting him. He keeps doing all he can to bring us back. That's what we've been, I hope you've been seeing that picture over and over again. People fall out of covenant with God. He doesn't fall out of covenant with them. He takes them back. Again and again 
and again. And as we approach the Old Testament, that's what I see. A God who goes to the very end, he gives his life, that's how much, to save us. And he never gives up on us. He has amazing patience with us. He forgives us over and over. Thank you, Lord. He gives us second chances. He gives us a third chance. Is anyone on their third, fourth, fifth or sixth chance with the Lord? (laughs) He keeps taking us back though. He's the father who waits by the gate. And when the prodigal starts, shows up on the horizon, runs to follow him because he he lets you go in the first place and make that choice. He holds back the tide of evil. I know we see a lot of evil in the world. What if God was doing nothing? It wouldn't, I don't even know if we'd even be here anymore. He holds back the tide of evil. He sends his son out of love. He pours out the gift of amazing grace to everyone who will humble themselves and admit their need for him that will give up on their pride and say, no, I need Jesus. I am a sinner. I need his grace and follow him. So what will you do today? Maybe God is here today or has you here today for such a time as this. And so I want to ask you that question. Maybe you were here for such a time as this. What will you do today? Would you pray with me? God, I am just amazed, firstly, at your servants, Esther and Mordecai, and what they faced and how they still lived for you. And I, I want to be like that, God. I pray you'll help us to be. But Lord, this morning, we, we just want to, we, we, uh, before you humbly, asking for your grace. We're here, Lord, admitting our need for you. We're here, Lord, admitting that we've done wrong. We're here, Lord, admitting that we need your forgiveness. So church, just as you're sitting there quietly, take a moment. Admit your need for God. Believe that he is who he says he is and commit to him today. I'll just give you a moment to do that quietly in your heart if you need to do that. So Lord, we want to be part of your your plan for redemption for this world. We don't want to hinder it. We don't want to ignore it and walk away from it. We want to be right in the middle, Lord Jesus. We offer ourselves to you today. We consecrate ourselves to be your holy people. We are your people and you are our God. And we stand here today knowing that our eternity is assured because of your amazing grace. We receive that again today afresh and we let it embolden us and inspire us and empower us to live for you, like Esther did. 
Amen.